and welcome to Brown Bag, a podcast series looking at the interconnections between media, social media in particular, democracy, politics, and technology from a global south perspective. My name is Sanjana Hattatua and I am a special advisor at the ICT for Peace Foundation. So when you say democracy or pro-social behavior, um, the additional layer that I would put on it is I'm really thinking about those in terms of safety and expression. Um, and something that I've been thinking about a lot recently in light of these events and in light of the history of what I've seen uh, social media abuse lead to in, in places like Myanmar is how much of a human idea safety, mm. democracy, and pro-social activity is. Things like social cohesion, polarization, healthy information environments. I mean, these are things, these, these are the issues of our time. And shifting to thinking about long-term solutions, society-level solutions, I think is what's required to really address the problems that we're seeing manifest uh, in a much more systematic way. Hello and welcome to this new episode of a podcast. I'm, I'm speaking today with actually an old friend and really very glad and happy and privileged she's joined me for this conversation. Sarah O oh is somebody I've known uh, now, I think, for close upon a decade. Um, and we first met in Yangon in Myanmar. She's an expert working at the intersection of a variety of things, but primarily looking at human rights, technology, and with vast experience in negotiating, navigating, critically appreciating, studying, and meaningfully responding to this, this complicated, complex, fluid domain and landscape at the intersection of all these issues before, might I add, it became an interest of Western media. So Sarah, I hope that 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 that, that, that captures what you, what you are and what you do. Uh, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. It's so great to be here. It's um, hard to believe how much has happened in a decade <laughs> in this case. Where do you even start? Um, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the conundrum around where to start um, our conversation. But I did want to peg it to something that you had tweeted recently, which is a term that intrigued me, which, you know, coming from Sri Lanka and talking about all of what is going on and wrong in the world today, generally, and on around tech in particular, and social media, I often use the term the global south, uh, and the lack of a global south focus and the lack of the global south in the room when a lot of decisions are made. You, though, had tweeted a term called the global majority, which of course makes sense, given that um, all of the social media platforms in the main, their markets uh, are now in the global south, not in the global north, and certainly not in the United States of America. Have you discovered who coined or popularized or projected that frame? And I suppose the second connected question is, why does that appeal to you? That's a great question. It um, really, you know, maybe to set some context, 
This came out of my frustration with hearing people refer to uh, what I consider to be uh, the majority of users of products like Facebook and other social media platforms um, as being part of, quote unquote, rest of the world. ROW is something that I think you hear often in Silicon Valley when you're talking about the Middle East, Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, right? Like entire regions uh, yeah. and, and markets. And um, outside of the US is another, another way I've heard it described. Um, what I found really interesting was within my community, uh, within the you know constellation of NGOs, academics, political scientists who study these regions, also having a debate about what the best way to describe this um, non-US, non-Western uh, Europe subset of nations. And um, many NGOs have started using global majority. Um, I haven't seen a, a crystal clear citation around the origin story yet. If anyone knows it, I would love to know. Please tweet at me. But um, I love the concept of global majority because it describes um, the center of gravity being um, much closer to, to what I see when I go on, on let's say, Facebook or other social media platforms. Um, you have really diverse conversations and information ecosystems that are nowhere near New York, London, San Francisco, um, the places that we associate with a lot of the culture that has led to some of these um, tech products. Well, that's fascinating. Um, and I suppose it's a sedge way into the next set of issues that I wanted to deal with. I mean, we started off saying, where, where do we start? Uh, you and I both uh, in capturing what's going on in the past decade, leave aside what's just going on in the past two weeks um, um, or in the last couple of days uh, at the time of recording this uh, with the US Supreme Court's decision on Roe versus Wade. But, you know, slightly longer gaze and, you know, you have Stop Asian Hate, you have um, BLM, you have a number of civic movements uh, in the United States. Um, you have a lot of pro-social activity in the global majority uh, in, in both Sri Lanka, unprecedented uh, uh, use of social media from March to June around popular uprisings against our government. Um, so you, you have innumerable examples of, I suppose, the better known insofar as how social media has been weaponized and instrumentalized against democracy and a democratic fabric. But you and I both know that there are also an equal amount of examples, less well known, I suppose, around how they have been used to support democracy, you know, by human rights advocacy and human rights NGOs and, and activists and journalists and investigative reporting and whatnot. So I guess, you know, you have what is not evident to me, at least in my limited reading of the Western media and even academia, which is that simultaneous interplay, you know, that that complex choreography of what, you know, of, of hate, hurt and harm, but also what helps democracy. And, you know, you have quite a unique gaze, Sarah, around all of that. And I wanted to get, you know, pick your brains around what your take would be around that 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 choreography that it's not it's not a toxic tango but you know there's this dance of you know of of that simultaneous interplay that 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 I don't find a nuanced capture of and I wanted to find find out what you thought about it 
toxic tango. <laughs> I, I, I think of a lot of those the, the additional um, layer that I would put on it is I'm really thinking about those in terms of safety and expression. Um, and something that I've been thinking about a lot recently in light of these events and in light of the history of what I've seen uh, social media abuse lead to and in places like Myanmar is how much of a human idea safety, mm. democracy, and pro-social activity is. Mm. Uh, there's a great British scientist um, who has a great quote, and he says something to the effect of, if you haven't put this idea into a machine, it's unreasonable to expect it to get there by itself. And so a lot of the work that I've done and that I, the ter my terrain is thinking about how do we get these ideas into the machine mm, mm. and what it, what is good, what is good enough? Mm. It's very hard. It's very hard on some things. Um, it's easier to put uh, questions about safety and expression in binary terms, but I would say the majority of the times it's impossible. And then add on this, you know, in this conversation, we're really interested in um, the experience of the global South, add on all those complexities and nuances and contextual concerns, it becomes very complicated. So I'm interested in both the philosophical aspect of what that toxicity looks and feels like, how it manifests, but also these really mundane, practical considerations for, for example, creating a taxonomy around mm. it, classifying it, counting it, mm. um, the, the really um, laborious effort that goes into building a, a V1 of what might be an A model that could, in, an artificial intelligence model that could detect some of this stuff. Um, so that's a little bit of how I think about uh, these really challenging uh, conversations that are happening right now. And just for the non-technical listeners, V1 would be the first version of of a model, um, uh, and and that yeah, you know, I'm translating. That, yeah. It's like Obama's anger translator from back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that is in turn a segue into the next question. I mean, I did mention at the start that we met in Yangon. Um, I came with the experience of growing Buddhist violent extremism in Sri Lanka. And that was a time when there was an equivalent movement uh, and growth in Myanmar as well, which of course now the media has reported on much more in, 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 in certain ways. What, in a way, Sarah, do you carry from that experience and from those years um, doing what you did with Pandyar, um, you know, wonderful organization, and how has it informed your work after you left the country? Particularly also, mm -hmm. I mean, you were dealing with uh, what happened to the country, uh, I think long after, years after you left, you know, when the, with the junta taking it over. So how did that, how, how did that help or not your engagement with the country per se, and also just more generally with the issues the country presents to the rest of the world? It's a big question. I see everything through the lens of what I saw in Myanmar, having been there right as the country was getting connected a week after I landed was yeah. when so 
SIM cards were being sold for the first time at an affordable rate um, to when I left, which was after um, the um, the humanitarian crisis was at full pitch, um, affecting obviously um, the Rohingya community fleeing to Bangladesh and massive levels of uh, violence and atrocity committed by the Myanmar military. What I found so um, disconnected, uh, incongruous, was the conversation around markets like Myanmar at the time within the industry, but also the development community. I'm speaking about international NGOs that go to places like Myanmar and support capacity building, education, health care, and so on. Um, and the reality of what was happening on the ground from where I was sitting, Myanmar was thought of as a frontier market that was being opened up. The most important thing that I think most of the companies I was speaking to, businesses that were looking to come to Myanmar was that growth potential. How many users, how much time, how many potential um, people could be on my product or service? Um, and what will they need to grow this economy so that we can do more of this? In sharp contrast, um, there were massive um, fissures in society, right? Uh, as it was becoming connected so rapidly, as it was coming out of historic isolation, as it was confronting a lot of uh, changes, um, modernization of society and so on. Um, and that that emphasis on how many more users, how much more growth, um, I think we'll look back on, on, on this era of the internet's history and realize that was completely misplaced. I think um, when we look back, we'll wish uh, we were looking at things like, what is the level of trust in society? What is um, the landscape of social cohesion? Um, what is, you know, what are other everyday indicators of societal health? And how does information access, how does social media fit into that? Um, I once heard a very senior product leader um, at Facebook say, uh, the one thing that we could have generally as a company is invested in research earlier and really understood um, all these problems, how the product is being used from a user perspective. And I think if you're able to uh, take a step back and think about what that actually means, it means doing things like understanding users in Myanmar that are using products like Facebook and understanding how it fits into their information ecosystem and society. So I take that with me everywhere I go, in every conversation I have, in every project that I work on. How are we looking more inwards as, to, as opposed to outwards? And as I look down the line and what we're up against and the future of the internet and internet policy and product development, innovation, um, that's what I would encourage everyone to think about. How are we thinking about internal deepening and internal expansion rather than outward expansion and, and growth? You know, there's a, there's a hacker called Bruce Schneier who talks about hackable societies. Um, and 
he goes away from the cybersec dimensions of that term um, as it presents itself and then goes into how uh, tax, uh, law, court, electoral uh, processes and frameworks and institutions are very often in democratic societies very open to disinfo's harm. And it's an unraveling from within. Um, and I've always maintained that um, one of the lessons from Sri Lanka, which at the point of recording is a failed state, um, is that from the point of time that I started studying it, which is January 2010, this info captured public attention, which in many discourses around critical infrastructure doesn't come into the conversation. You talk about critical infrastructure as power, utilities, water, uh, grids, but public attentions capture and retention by toxic, harmful, misleading, untrue, spurious, incendiary content, I find that is at the root of my country's cataclysmic implosion, but also front-facing, front-door issues for democratic societies. And that kind of resonates with what you just said now. Yeah, about... It sure uh, does. And it's, it's um, I would add that we're talking about social infrastructure right it's yep. it's very it's uh exactly electricity right. it's the water but you add that social layer gosh it that's that's uh, another layer of multi-dimensionality that really complicates um the picture but you know i was just thinking that the socio-technological approach uh, you know tell me if i'm wrong doesn't seem to be one that if if, if it is it's probably recent but it doesn't seem to be one that quite resonates yet with the valley. I'm trying to think about what angle uh, makes the most sense uh, to, to tackle the question. In, in short, I think there's a long way to go yeah. to understand the intersection of society and technology. It requires a massive investment and curiosity about the um, user's experience around your product. And right now, the user is really thought of in a universalistic way, which as we know, as you know, we're talking about Sri Lanka and um, I've worked in, in places that are very different from the universal user in say the United States or the West. Um, you can't sufficiently deliver on that unless you're doing a deep dive in several places, several markets from several different perspectives. Um, there's a great paper out um, that Alex Hanna wrote, um, who's a researcher who works on um, these issues. And I love the paper because it talks structu about structural barriers to getting um, the experience of, say, a marginalized community or voice right. If you're designing products for scale, by design, you will be pushing out marginal experiences to yeah. the side. Yeah. And so in order to get there, in order of in, in order to really get this intersection of society and technology, um, the question that I have is what are we doing to offset that? What are we doing anticipating that this um, minority experience is understood, accounted for, and uh, not forgotten? Well, it's interesting that you say that because you know the minority and the edge may well be the majority. 
right? It's it's you know, uh, and that's the thing, right? It's that it's that it's negotiating your location in the use of those frames as well, um, which I love that point. I love that point. The vantage point really matters. Yeah, Yeah. I've been thinking about this um, just in terms of a lot of these trust and safety challenges um, are really hard, right? Like take something like hate speech and enforcing on hate speech. You not only have to determine um, really defined ways of understanding that concept, but then you have to translate it into all these different contexts and, and countries. And this question of vantage point, who decides what gets taxonomized or who decides what gets counted is so critical and um, so important for understanding where those edges are. And I, I think that's something that unfortunately we'll have to continue grappling with for some yeah. time. There just isn't a great um, way to address that. I believe it's a conundrum, right? Like yeah. have you yeah. um, remove some of those barriers to equity but, when you know, it comes it's- to enforcement? You know, Sarah, it's also a conversation, right? I mean, I, I think the conversation matters as opposed to an endpoint, which you know brings about a, a panacea or a solution. Um, I think you and I have been both fighting for that con- conversation to happen, which is what's important, um, independent of, in a way, um, the simplistic projection and promotion and production uh, of of solutions, right? I mean, because these are these are wicked problems; they will never have a solution um so i think that's kind of what 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 we are both grappling with and 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 championing but i did want to pick your brain on what you're also passionate about which is human rights and first principles right i mean that's also kind of what you've been working on um for 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 as long as i've known you and Listen, the question I want to ask is, is, is what, what do you see is the future of human rights in the era of big platforms, right? I mean, you know, you have Twitter's Blue Sky and you have uh, Mastodon and you have all sorts of ideas for technical architectures that democratize um, social media uh, platforms, right? Uh, you know, taking them away from a hub-spoke model into a more decentralized model self-owned, self-governed. And, you know, the telos of that also is problematic, you know, in, in, in countries like mine and in, in the global south, where obviously that leads to the mushrooming potentially of the issues that we see today. So you have, you know, you have a, you have a nuanced um, a debate that is, uh, uh, and a conversation that though is always presented, you know, the, the, the democratization is always presented as the solution to what is there today. Uh, and what is there today is often critiqued as um, the, the 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 source of all evil and what's going wrong and on. Um, what you know, y- you've been in this industry, and also, by the way, I mean, you've been in industry, which is quite rare. Um, and you know, with that experience and with that gaze and perspective, um, what's your take on 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 human rights and its intersection with um, platform governance and the and the issues we are seeing today mm-hmm. in your country, in my country, and and around the world. Mm-hmm. The, the ground is shifting. The landscape and terrain is fundamentally different uh, today than it was five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, this idea of how to, the work that I do is figuring out how to implement human rights principles technically 
So we know what the first principles are, um, uh, what the UN guiding principles are, for example, but how you translate those into business decisions or things that you can ask companies to do if you're an advocate is not straightforward. We're at, we're at a really important, I see you laughing because you know it's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's um, such a unique moment in time where, where a lot of this is new. Those principles actually are, they haven't been written in stone for, for decades. So um, I, would, I would just um, note that for anyone who's not familiar with this space and for people who are, I think everyone knows how hard it is. And um, I would just say the goalposts are changing. I think um, as having worked in industry, um, the previous rubric that used to work in an era where the biggest problems were dealing with certain government requests has now multiplied into yeah. a vast kaleidoscope of issues yeah. um, and trade-offs. Um, a common one that I'll call out that I'm sure um, you've thought about is, is dealing with bad governments. Like how do you balance uh, company values expression with keeping your service on? Um, I think that's something that many people are beginning to think about from a long-term um, strategy perspective and sustainability perspective when it comes to um, implementing international human rights principles. And the elephant in the room actually is India, right? It's not, it's not, it's not the U.S. I mean, with what the with what PM Modi is doing, with what the new policies are about, and what uh, what is happening and going on and being instigated and promoted and inflamed, um, you know, the pushback that the companies themselves are getting, you know, I mean, I find, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that some of the most interesting policy debates are not around Section 230 or across the Atlantic with the what what the Brits are doing. Uh, or you know further further into Europe with the new disinformation framework. You know it's it's India in a sense that is a preface um, to what the rest of the world and the companies and platforms will have to deal with. I think that's why Sanjana, it's so helpful to have conversations like this. Your voice in some of these debates. There's a few others um, who continue to drill. Uh, down on the international perspective on these issues. And I wish those voices were louder. I wish more people were listening to them um, uh, when it comes to thinking about smart regulation and policy debates. Um, I think all of us need to think about how to make that voice louder mm -hmm. and ensure people have this global perspective. Because you're right, it's, it's not... Um, I think there was this easy set of tasks and um, uh, checklists when when the world was less complicated. Um, if you were an internet rights activist, or if you supported digital rights, or if you hated dictators, um, there was a pretty straightforward menu of options and considerations. But on both sides, right? If you're an advocate, this is what you ask for. If you're a company, this is what you're expected to do. Um, that that feels so dated that model yeah. now, and I think yeah. unless the conversation is global, we will not get anywhere closer to finding coherent solutions and strategies. Speaking about dated, before this podcast, I was thinking wistfully about my time in GeoCities um, and the three D animation. GeoCities. Can you remember that? That's going to date the both of us. I know. 
So apologies to the audience um, <laughs> and the listeners. But, you know, that was, that was my first experience as a Sri Lankan of an online community and then creating your own homepage and, you know, putting all those garish stuff that was, you know, you know the thing to do. And then with, with AOL, you know, the ASL, you know, uh, <laughs> which was the, 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 the first greeting, you know, what's your age, your sex, and your location. And, you know, it, it, it seems a lifetime many lifetimes, you know, as a Buddhist, it's almost his karmic life cycles away, actually, you know, in terms of what we're dealing with today. So I know I, I hear you, you know, in terms of how much things have changed. Um, in what is actually not not that long a time. I think that's another reason why um, we should all remember, at least I try to, as, as I work on these issues, that not all is lost, right? Like we can actively shape this debate. We can actively um, raise questions, raise issues, yeah. try things. Um, I know this is probably hard for most people to believe, but there are dedicated teams of people working at companies like the ones that I've worked at, um, actively wrestling with a lot of these questions. And um, it would be better if, if, if there was a silver bullet and um, some of those people were farther yeah. along and, and finding the answers, but that's not the case. And so to the extent uh, there are ideas, concepts, proposals, um, I, I truly believe just given where we are and the attention on these issues, we have this incredible opportunity to shape what sort of trajectory this conversation takes and this dialogue takes. So, so for my penultimate question, is all, it's, it's almost intuitively um, prefaced by what you just said, which is, I often grapple with the strategic manufacture of hopelessness. Uh, there's much to be disappointed and dispirited by looking at the world today. And that's, there's, there's no way um, to gloss over that. However, what I also see is the strategic amplification of anger, anxiety, antagonism, and hopelessness as a deliberate ploy to make you lose faith make you lose optimism, uh, that things can never change and never become better, and that you kind of need to chip away at it, you know? Um, you know, the civil rights movement wasn't a Facebook-like away. You know, we, we tend to forget the hard work and the high touch and the decades that go into making social change um, in the immediacy of what we unconsciously perhaps expect with what we now do today leveraging the power and the reach of social media to bring about much the same social change that we want to see. And so, you know, in an era of manufactured hopelessness and in a global and local world and context where there is much to be dispirited by, how, Sarah, you know, do, do you retain hope? Uh, and what keeps you holding on to that? given how grounded I know you are to things that are happening around the world and in your country too. I think about people who rely on these products every day and the lack of choice often mm. in using so many of the products that are made in Silicon Valley and the outsized impact that they're having on society it really leaves no choice but to 
engage from my perspective as um, someone who thinks about these issues. And I, I feel like I have no choice um, but to be optimistic. Um, being pessimistic feels um, like a privilege mm. we don't have. I also have started to think about this as a long-term problem, which lowers my blood pressure a little bit, <laughs> thinking that we have more than uh, the period before the next election cycle to fix this problem. Things like social cohesion, polarization, healthy information environments. I mean, these are things, these, these are the issues of our time. And shifting to thinking about long-term solutions, society level solutions, I think is what's required to really address the problems that we're seeing manifest uh, in a much more systematic way. Um, I think a lot about the resilience that people are building and working on climate change. I see so many parallels in the advocacy, uh, research, institution building that's happening around um, another long-term problem that requires um, multi-industry, multi-sectoral um, thinking and investment. And um, that's the biggest lesson that that I've learned in observing that work is is really taking a much wider horizon um, to thinking about both solutions and and problem sets. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And and for my final question, I suppose I suppose to also riff off the uh, the note of optimism, um, can you share with with me and the listeners, uh, you know, anything interesting that you're working on? Um, although the although this is go out as a podcast, this has been recorded as a as a as a as a Zoom video, and I can see Sarah, that you're that you're um, uh, uh, framed by a very literary background. You know, it's 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 quite lovely to see a library on both sides of of where you're sitting. It's 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 a it's a it's a beautiful thing to see actually. And I and I you know I'm hazarding a guess that you're you know you want to be inspired by the environment to do something literary, um, <laughs> but I may be off the mark. So would you would you care to share? with me and the listeners anything that you're that you're working on at present of course i this idea santana that you touched on of centering our discussion around the experience of the majority of the people in the world is something i've been thinking about and almost um you know losing sleep over and so i'm working on an essay collection um sharing some of those stories what's it like uh to rely on a product uh, like Facebook every day for essential communication. Um, what does it feel like to use a product that's not designed for you? What's the physicality of it? What's the emotional experience? Why, are, why, is, it, why is this problem so hard? What are the uh, conundrums that industry is facing in getting quote unquote global South markets right? And so it's um, an exploration of a lot of these what you mentioned are wicked problems and uh, some reflections um, on the human experience around rubbing up against some of these problems. And when can we expect to see this collection of essays? It depends on how inspired I am by this library I'm sitting in. Yeah, yeah, uh, but yeah. Ho hope, but hopefully very soon. Listen, all the best with your writing. Um, I could I could probably speak with you uh, for an entire day, if not days, and and we've done that, you know, in the past. And uh, thank you for 
always providing me with guidance and insight. Um, it's been always such a lovely experience to speak with you. Um, and going back to Yangon, but all the occasions you've touched base since. Uh, thanks very much for um, sharing your insights and thoughts, Sarah, on this podcast as well. Thank you. I'm such a fan of your work and think this issue is so important. So I'm really happy to see this um, conversation happen and I can't wait to listen to the other episodes.